Tim isn't a perfect man. He's not the perfect husband or father. He's a guy struggling to provide for his family. No matter how hard he tries, it's all falling apart. When it looks like things can't get any worse, the accident happens. Tim can't remember a thing, only the sound of twisting metal, of the nightmares, and of the coyote stalking him through the halls of still waters. The doctors are lying, hiding behind false and stolen faces. Tim and the other patients are prisoners. Or is it all in his head, if he could only just remember? Follow Tim on his downward spiral through the asylum, through Helen back, as he uncovers the truth of what happened to his family. Tim E. Less is a disturbed horror thriller of insanity, chemical seduction, and true nightmares come to life. Silent Hill meets the cell. Sometimes the real horror is remembering. Tim E. Less by Lucas Millian. Available on Amazon Kindle and Amazon Paperback. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is brought to you by BunnySlippers.com and FoundItemClothing.com. You're not new to the show. You know who they are and what they do. Slippers, novelty shirts from your favorite cult films. Yeah. Okay. This is a reading episode. Next episode should be a full episode, unless there's another reading episode. So, thank you for listening to PGTTCM. Go to us at pgttcm.com, pgttcm.podbean.com, where you can find our patron button to help, I don't know, support the show. You can also go to paypal.me slash pgttcm. And uh, why not go to audibletrials.com slash pgttcm? Sign up for Audible. Get a free book. We get something. You get something. It's all good. And enough for ads. And how about edited and produced by D.B. Spitzer. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is part of the Dark Myths Collective, and you can find out more about Dark Myths and all their many, many podcasts by going to darkmyths.org. I'd like to recommend Blurry Photos with David Flora. You can find them at blurryphotos.org. And it is a podcast about the unexplained and the unexplored. They've got a vast library to listen to, and it's a lot of fun. All right, on with the show. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos starts now. Recorded by Peter Yearsley. Ghost Stories of an Antiquary, Part 2, by M.R. James. Author's Preface to Volume 2 The first six of the seven tales were Christmas productions. The very first, a school story, having been made up for the benefit of King's College Choir School. The stalls of Barchester Cathedral was printed in Contemporary Review. Mr. Humphreys and His Inheritance was written to fill up the volume. In A School Story, I had Temple Grove East Sheen in mind. In the Tractate Midoth, Cambridge University Library. In Martin's Close, Sampford Courtney in Devon. The Cathedral of Barchester is a blend of Canterbury, Salisbury and Hereford. End of preface. A School Story Two men in a smoking room 
were talking of their private school days. At our school, said A, we had a ghost's footmark on the staircase. What was it like? Oh, very unconvincing. Just the shape of a shoe with a square toe, if I remember right. The staircase was a stone one. I never heard any story about the thing. That seems odd when you come to think of it. Why didn't someone invent one, I wonder? You never can tell with little boys. They have a mythology of their own. There's a subject for you, by the way. The folklore of private schools. Yeah, the crop is rather scanty, though. I imagine, if you were to investigate the cycle of ghost stories, for instance, which the boys at private schools tell each other, they would all turn out to be highly compressed versions of stories out of books. Nowadays, the Strand and Pearsons and so on would be extensively drawn upon. No doubt. They weren't born or thought of in my time. Let's see. I wonder if I can remember the staple ones that I was told. First, there was the house with a room in which a series of people insisted on passing a night, and each of them in the morning was found kneeling in a corner and had just time to say, I've seen it! and died. Wasn't that the house in Berkeley Square? I dare say it was. Then there was the man who heard a noise in the passage at night, opened his door, and saw someone crawling towards him on all fours with his eye hanging out on his cheek. Um, there was besides... let me think. Yes, the room where a man was found dead in bed with a horseshoe mark on his forehead. And the floor under the bed was covered with marks of horseshoes also. I don't know why. Also, there was, uh, the lady who, on locking her bedroom door in a strange house, heard a thin voice among the bed curtains say, Now we're shut in for the night. None of those had any explanations or sequel. I wonder if they uh, go on still, those stories. Oh, likely enough, with additions from the magazines, as I said. You never heard, did you, of a real ghost at a private school? I thought not. Nobody has that I ever came across. From the way in which you said that, I gather that you have. I really don't know. But this is what was in my mind. It happened at my private school thirty-odd years ago, and I haven't any explanation of it. The school, I mean, was near London. It was established in a large and fairly old house, a great white building with very fine grounds about it. There were large cedars in the garden, as there are in so many of the older gardens in the Thames Valley, and ancient elms in the three or four fields which we used for our games. I think probably it was quite an attractive place, but boys seldom allow that their schools possess any tolerable features. I came to the school in a September soon after the year 1870, and among the boys who arrived on the same day was one whom I took to, a Highland boy, whom I'll call MacLeod. I needn't spend time in describing him. The main thing is that I got to know him very well. He was not an exceptional boy in any way not particularly good at books or games, but he suited me. The school was a large one. There must have been from 120 to 130 boys there, as a rule, and so a considerable staff of masters was required, and there were rather frequent changes among them. One term, perhaps it was my third or fourth, a new master made his appearance. His name was Sampson. 
He was a tallish, stoutish, pale, black-bearded man. I think we liked him. He had travelled a good deal, and had stories which amused us on our school walks, so that there was some competition among us to get within earshot of him. I remember too, oh dear me, I have hardly thought of it since then, that he had a charm on his watch-chain that attracted my attention one day, and he let me examine it. It was, I now suppose, a gold Byzantine coin. There was an effigy of some absurd emperor on one side. The other side had been worn practically smooth, and he had had cut on it, rather barbarously, his own initials, GWS, and a date, 24th of July, 1865. Yes, I can see it now. He told me he had picked it up in Constantinople. It was about the size of a florin, perhaps rather smaller. Well, the first odd thing that happened was this. Samson was doing Latin grammar with us. One of his favourite methods, perhaps it is rather a good one, was to make us construct sentences out of our own heads to illustrate the rules he was trying to make us learn. Of course that is a thing which gives a silly boy a chance of being impertinent. There are lots of school stories in which that happens, or anyhow there might be. But Samson was too good a disciplinarian for us to think of trying that on with him. Now, on this occasion, he was telling us how to express remembering in Latin, and he ordered us each to make a sentence beginning in the verb memini, I remember. Well, most of us made up some ordinary sentence, such as, I remember my father, or he remembers his book, or something equally uninteresting. And I dare say a good many put down, memino librum meum, and so forth. But the boy I mentioned, MacLeod, was evidently thinking of something more elaborate than that. The rest of us wanted to have our sentences passed, and get on to something else, so some kicked him under the desk and I, who was next to him, poked him and whispered to him to look sharp. But he didn't seem to attend. I looked at his paper and saw that he had put down nothing at all. So I jogged him again harder than before and upbraided him sharply for keeping us all waiting. That did have some effect. He started and seemed to wake up, and then very quickly he scribbled about a couple of lines on his paper and showed it up with the rest. As it was the last, or nearly the last, to come in, and as Samson had a good deal to say to the boys who had written Memeniscimus Patri Mayo and the rest of it, it turned out that the clock struck twelve before he had got to MacLeod, and MacLeod had to wait afterwards to have his sentence corrected. There was nothing much going on outside when I got out, so I waited for him to come. He came very slowly when he did arrive, and I guessed there had been some sort of trouble. Well, I said, what did you get? Oh, I don't know, said MacLeod. Nothing much, but I think Samson's rather sick with me. Why, did you show him up some rot? No fear, he said. It was all right as far as I could see. It was like this. Memento, that's right enough for remember, and it takes a genitive. Memento putei interquatuor taxos. What silly rot, I said. What made you shove that down? What does it mean? That's the funny part, said MacLeod. I'm not quite sure what it does mean. All I know is, it just came into my head, and I corked it down. 
I know what I think it means, because just before I wrote it down, I had a sort of picture of it in my head. I believe it means, remember the well among the four, what are those dark sort of trees that have red berries on them? Mountain ashes, I suppose you mean. I never heard of them, said Miss Powell. No, I'll tell you. Yews. Well, and what did Samson say? Why, he was jolly odd about it. When he read it, he got up and went to the mantelpiece and stopped quite a long time without saying anything, with his back to me. And then he said, without turning round and rather quiet, What do you suppose that means? I told him what I thought, only I couldn't remember the name of the silly tree. And then he wanted to know why I put it down, and I had to say something or other. And after that, he left off talking about it, and asked me how long I'd been here, and where my people lived, and things like that. And then I came away, but he wasn't looking a bit well. I don't remember any more that was said by either of us about this. Next day, MacLeod took to his bed with a chill or something of the kind, and it was a week or more before he was in school again. And as much as a month went by without anything happening that was noticeable. Whether or not Mr. Sampson was really startled, as MacLeod had thought, he didn't show it. I'm pretty sure, of course, now, that there was something very curious in his past history. But I'm not going to pretend that we boys were sharp enough to guess any such thing. There was one other incident of the same kind as the last which I told you. Several times since that day, we had had to make up examples in school to illustrate different rules. But there had never been any row, except when we did them wrong. At last, there came a day when we were going through those dismal things which people call conditional sentences, and we were told to make a conditional sentence expressing a future consequence. We did it, right or wrong, and showed up our bits of paper, and Samson began looking through them. All at once, he got up, made some odd sort of noise in his throat, and rushed out by a door that was just by his desk. We sat there for a minute or two, and then... I suppose it was incorrect, but we went up, I and one or two others, to look at the papers on his desk. Of course, I thought someone must have put down some nonsense or other, and Samson had gone off to report him. All the same, I noticed that he hadn't taken any of the papers with him when he ran out. Well, the top paper on the desk was written in red ink, which no one used, and it wasn't in anyone's hand who was in the class. They all looked at it. MacLeod and all, and took their dying oaths that it wasn't theirs. Then I thought of counting the bits of paper, and of this I made quite certain that there were seventeen bits of paper on the desk and sixteen boys in the form. Well, I bagged the extra paper and kept it, and I believe I have it now. And now you will want to know what was written on it. It was simple enough and harmless enough, I should have said. Si tu non veneris ad me, ego veniam ad te. Which means, I suppose, if you don't come to me, I'll come to you. Could you show me the paper? Interrupted the listener. Yes, I could. But there's another odd thing about it. That same afternoon, I took it out of my locker. I know for certain it was the same bit, for I made a finger mark on it and no single trace of writing of any kind was there on it. I kept it, as I said, 
and since that time I've tried various experiments to see whether sympathetic ink had been used, but absolutely without result. So much for that. After about half an hour, Samson looked in again, said that he had felt very unwell, and told us we might go. He came rather gingerly to his desk and gave just one look at the uppermost paper, and I suppose he thought he must have been dreaming. Anyhow, he asked no questions. That day was a half-holiday, and next day Samson was in school again, much as usual. That night, the third and last incident in my story happened. We, MacLeod and I, slept in a dormitory at right angles to the main building. Samson slept in the main building, on the first floor. There was a very bright full moon. At an hour, which I can't tell exactly, but sometime between one and two, I was woken up by somebody shaking me. It was MacLeod, and a nice state of mind he seemed to be in. Come, he said. Come, there's a burglar getting in through Samson's window. As soon as I could speak, I said, Well, why not call out and wake everyone up? No, no, he said. I'm not sure who it is. Don't make a row. Come and look. Naturally, I came and looked, and naturally there was no one there. I was cross enough and should have called MacLeod plenty of names. Only, I couldn't tell why, it seemed to me that there was something wrong. Something that made me very glad I wasn't alone to face it. We were still at the window looking out, and as soon as I could, I asked him what he had heard or seen. I didn't hear anything at all, he said, but about five minutes before I woke you, I found myself looking out of this window here, and there was a man sitting or kneeling on Samson's windowsill and looking in, and I thought he was beckoning. What sort of man? MacLeod wriggled. I don't know, he said, but I can tell you one thing. He was beastly thin, and he looked as if he was wet all over. And, he said, looking round and whispering, as if he hardly liked to hear himself, I'm not at all sure that he was alive. We went on talking in whispers some time longer, and eventually crept back to bed. No one else in the room woke or stirred the whole time. I believe we did sleep a bit afterwards, but we were very cheap next day. And next day, Mr. Sampson was gone, not to be found, and I believe no trace of him has ever come to light since. In thinking it over, one of the oddest things about it all has seemed to me to be the fact that neither MacLeod nor I ever mentioned what we had seen to any third person whatever. Of course, no questions were asked on the subject, and if they had been, I'm inclined to believe that we could not have made any answer. We seemed unable to speak about it. That is my story, said the narrator. The only approach to a ghost story connected with a school that I know. But still, I think, an approach to such a thing. The sequel to this may perhaps be reckoned highly conventional, but a sequel there is, and so it must be produced. There had been more than one listener to the story and in the latter part of that same year, or of the next, one such listener was staying at a country house in Ireland. One evening, his host was turning over a drawer full of odds and ends in the smoking room. Suddenly, he put his hand upon a little box. Now, he said, you know about old things. Tell me what that is. 
My friend opened the little box and found in it a thin gold chain with an object attached to it. He glanced at the object and then took off his spectacles to examine it more narrowly. What's the history of this? he asked. Odd enough, was the answer. You know the yew thicket in the shrubbery? Well, a year or two back we were cleaning out the old well that used to be in the clearing here, and what do you suppose we found? Is it possible that you found a body? said the visitor with an odd feeling of nervousness. We did that, but what's more, in every sense of the word, we found two. Good heavens, two? Was there anything to show how they got there? Was this thing found with them? It was, among the rags of the clothes that were on one of the bodies. A bad business, whatever the story of it may have been. One body had the arms tight round the other. They must have been there thirty years or more. Long enough before we came to this place. You may judge we filled the well up fast enough. Do you make anything of what's cut on that gold coin you have there? I think I can, said my friend, holding it to the light. But he read it without much difficulty. It seems to be GWS, 24th of July, 1865. THE ROSE GARDEN Mr. and Mrs. Anstruther were at breakfast in the parlour of Westfield Hall, in the county of Essex. They were arranging plans for the day. "'George,' said Mrs. Anstruther, "'I think you had better take the car to Malden, and see if you can get any of those knitted things I was speaking about, which would do for my stall at the bazaar.' "'Oh, well, if you wish it, Mary, of course I can do that.' but I had half arranged to play a round with Geoffrey Williamson this morning. The bazaar isn't till Thursday of next week, is it? What has that to do with it, George? I should have thought you would have guessed that if I can't get to the things I want in Malden, I shall have to write to all manner of shops in town, and they are certain to send something quite unsuitable in price or quality the first time. If you have actually made an appointment with Mr. Williamson, you had better keep it. But I must say, I think you might have let me know. Oh, no, no, it wasn't really an appointment. I quite see what you mean. I'll go. And what shall you do yourself? Why, when the work of the house is arranged for, I must see about laying out my new rose garden. By the way, before you start for Malden, I wish you would just take Collins to look at the place I fixed upon. You know it, of course. Well... I'm not quite sure that I do, Mary. Is it at the upper end, towards the village? Good gracious, no, my dear George. I thought I had made that quite clear. No, it's that small clearing just off the shrubbery path that goes towards the church. Oh, yes. Where we were saying there must have been a summer house once, the place with the old seat and the posts. But do you think there's enough sun there? My dear George, do allow me some common sense. And don't credit me with all your ideas about summer houses. Yes, there will be plenty of sun when we have got rid of some of those box bushes. I know what you're going to say, and I have as little wish as you to strip the place bare. All I want Collins to do is to clear away the old seats and the posts and things before I come out in an hour's time, and I hope you will manage to get off fairly soon. After luncheon, I think I shall go on with my sketch of the church. 
And if you please, you can go over to the links, or... Ah, a good idea. Very good. Yes, you finish that sketch, Mary, and I shall be glad of a round. I was going to say, you might call on the bishop. But I suppose it is no use my making any suggestion. And now do be getting ready, or half the morning will be gone. Mr. Anstruther's face, which had shown symptoms of lengthening, shortened itself again, and he hurried from the room, and was soon heard giving orders in the passage. Mrs. Anstruther, a stately dame of some fifty summers, proceeded, after a second consideration of the morning's letters, to her housekeeping. Within a few minutes, Mr. Anstruther had discovered Collins in the greenhouse, and they were on their way to the site of the projected rose garden. I do not know much about the conditions most suitable to these nurseries, but I am inclined to believe that Mrs. Anstruther, though in the habit of describing herself as a great gardener, had not been well advised in the selection of a spot for the purpose. It was a small, dank clearing, bounded on one side by a path, and on the other by thick box bushes, laurels, and other evergreens. The ground was almost bare of grass, and dark of aspect. Remains of rustic seats and an old and corrugated oak post somewhere near the middle of the clearing had given rise to Mr. Anstruther's conjecture that a summer-house had once stood there. Clearly, Collins had not been put in possession of his mistress's intentions with regard to this plot of ground, and when he learnt them from Mr. Anstruther, he displayed no enthusiasm. "'Of course I could clear them seats away soon enough,' he said. "'They aren't no ornament to the place, Mr. Anstruther, and rotten too. "'Look here, sir,' and he broke off a large piece. "'Rotten right through.' Yes, clear them away, to be sure we can do that. And the post, said Mr. Anstruther. That's got to go, too. Collins advanced and shook the post with both hands. Then he rubbed his chin. That's firm in the ground, that post is, he said. That's been there a number of years, Mr. Anstruther. I doubt I shan't get that up, not quite so soon as what I can do with them seats. "'But your mistress specially wishes it to be got out of the way in an hour's time,' said Mr. Anstruther. Collins smiled, and shook his head slowly. "'You'll excuse me, sir, but you feel of it for yourself.' "'No, sir. No one can't do what's impossible to them, can they, sir? "'I could get that post up by after tea-time, sir. "'But that'll want a lot of digging. "'What you require, you see, sir, if you'll excuse me naming of it, you want the soil loosening round this post here. And me and the boy, we should take a little time doing of that. But now, these here seats, said Collins, appearing to appropriate this portion of the scheme as due to his own resourcefulness. Why, I can get the barrow round and have them cleared away in, why, less than an hour's time from now, if you'll permit of it. Only... Only what, Collins? Well, now, ain't for me to go against orders no more than what it is for you yourself, or, or anyone else. This was added somewhat hurriedly. But if you'll pardon me, sir, this ain't the place I should have picked out for no rose garden myself. Why, well, look at them box and Laurestinus. How they regular preclude the light from... Ah, yes, but we've got to get rid of some of them, of course. Oh, indeed, get rid of them. Yes, to be sure, but... I beg your pardon, Mr. Anstruther. I'm sorry, Collins, but I must be getting on now. I hear the car at the door. Your mistress will explain exactly what she wishes. I'll tell her then, 
that you can see your way to clearing away the seats at once and the post this afternoon. Good morning. Collins was left rubbing his chin. Mrs. Anstruther received the report with some discontent, but did not insist upon any change of plan. By four o'clock that afternoon, she had dismissed her husband to his golf, had dealt faithfully with Collins and with the other duties of the day, and having sent a campstool and umbrella to the proper spot, had just settled down to her sketch of the church, as seen from the shrubbery, when a maid came hurrying down the path to report that Miss Wilkins had called. Miss Wilkins was one of the few remaining members of the family from whom the Anstruthers had brought the Westfield estate some few years back. She had been staying in the neighbourhood, and this was probably a farewell visit. Perhaps you could ask Miss Wilkins to join me here, said Mrs. Anstruther, and soon Miss Wilkins, a person of mature years, approached. Yes, I'm leaving the ashes tomorrow, and I shall be able to tell my brother how tremendously you have improved the place. Of course, he can't help regretting the old house just a little, as I do myself. But the garden is really delightful now. I am so glad you can say so. But you mustn't think we've finished our improvements. Let me show you where I mean to put a rose garden. It's close by here. The details of the project were laid before Miss Wilkins at some length, but her thoughts were evidently elsewhere. Yes, delightful, she said at last, rather absently. But do you know, Mrs. Anstruther, I'm afraid I was thinking of old times. I'm very glad to have seen just this spot again before you altered it. Frank and I had quite a romance about this place. Yes, said Mrs. Anstruther, smilingly. Do tell me what it was. Something quaint and charming, I'm sure. Not so very charming, but it has always seemed to me curious. Neither of us would ever be here alone when we were children, and I'm not sure that I should care about it now in certain moods. It is one of those things that can hardly be put into words, by me at least, and that sound rather foolish if they are not properly expressed. I can tell you, after a fashion, what it was that gave us, well, almost a horror of the place when we were alone. It was towards the evening of one very hot autumn day, when Frank had disappeared mysteriously about the grounds, and I was looking for him to fetch him to tea. And going down this path, I suddenly saw him not hiding in the bushes as I rather expected, but sitting on the bench in the old summer house. There was a wooden summer house here, you know, up in the corner, asleep, but with such a dreadful look on his face that I really thought he must be ill or even dead. I rushed at him and shook him and told him to wake up. And wake up he did with a scream. I assure you the poor boy seemed almost beside himself with fright. He hurried me away to the house and was in a terrible state all that night, hardly sleeping. Someone had to sit up with him as far as I remember. He was better very soon, but for days I couldn't get him to say why he had been in such a condition. It came out at last that he had really been asleep, and 
had had a very odd, disjointed sort of dream. He never saw much of what was around him, but he felt the scenes most vividly. First he made out that he was standing in a large room with a number of people in it, and that someone was opposite to him who was very powerful, and he was being asked questions which he felt to be very important, and whenever he answered them, someone, either the person opposite to him or someone else in the room, seemed to be, as he said, making something up against him. All the voices sounded to him very distant, but he remembered bits of the things that were said. Where were you on the 19th of October? And is this your handwriting? And so on. I can see now, of course, that he was dreaming of some trial, but we were never allowed to see the papers, and it was odd that a boy of eight should have such a vivid idea of what went on in a court. All the time, he felt, he said, the most intense anxiety and oppression and hopelessness, though I don't suppose he used such words as that to me. Then after that there was an interval in which he remembered being dreadfully restless and miserable. And then there came another sort of picture when he was aware that he had come out of doors on a dark, raw morning with a little snow about. It was in a street, or at any rate among houses, and he felt that there were numbers and numbers of people there too, and that he was taken up some creaking wooden steps and stood on a sort of platform. But the only thing he could actually see was a small fire burning somewhere near him. Someone who had been holding his arm left hold of it and went towards this fire. And then he said the fright he was in was worse than at any other part of his dream. And if I had not wakened him, he didn't know what would have become of him. A curious dream for a child to have, wasn't it? Well, so much for that. It must have been later in the year that Frank and I were here, and I was sitting in the arbour just about sunset. I noticed the sun was going down, and told Frank to run in and see if tea was ready while I finished a chapter in the book I was reading. Frank was away longer than I expected, and the light was going so fast that I had to bend over my book to make it out. All at once, I became conscious that someone was whispering to me inside the arbour. The only words I could distinguish, or thought I could, were something like, pull, pull, I'll push, you pull. I started up in something of a fright. The voice, it was little more than a whisper, sounded so hoarse and angry, and yet as if it came from a long, long way off, just as it had done in Frank's dream. But though I was startled, I had enough courage to look round and try to make out where the sound came from. And this sounds very foolish, I know, but still it is the fact. I made sure that it was strongest when I put my ear to an old post, which was part of the end of the seat. I was so certain of this that I remembered making some marks on the post, as deep as I could with the scissors out of my work basket. I don't know why. I wonder, by the way, whether... That isn't the very post itself. Well, yes, it might be. There are marks and scratches on it. But one can't be sure. Anyhow, it was just like the post you have there. My father got to know that both of us had had a fright in the arbour 
and he went down there himself one evening after dinner, and the arbour was pulled down at very short notice. I recollect hearing my father talking about it to an old man who used to do odd jobs in the place, and the old man saying, Don't you fear for that, sir. He's fast enough in there without no one don't take and let him out. But when I asked who it was, I could get no satisfactory answer. Possibly my father or mother might have told me more about it when I grew up. But as you know, they both died when we were still quite children. I must say, it has always seemed very odd to me, and I've often asked the older people in the village whether they knew of anything strange. But either they knew nothing, or they wouldn't tell me. Dear, dear, how I have been boring you with my childish remembrances. But indeed that arbour did absorb our thoughts quite remarkably for a time. You can fancy, can't you, the kind of stories that we made up for ourselves. Well, dear Miss Anstruther, I must be leaving you now. We shall meet in town this winter, I hope, shall we? Etc., etc. The seats and the post were cleared away and uprooted, respectively, by that evening. Late summer weather is proverbially treacherous, and during dinner time Mrs. Collins sent up to ask for a little brandy, because her husband had took a nasty chill, and she was afraid he would not be able to do much the next day. Mrs. Anstruther's morning reflections were not wholly placid. She was sure some roughs had got into the plantation during the night. And another thing, George. The moment that Collins is about again, you must tell him to do something about the owls. I never heard anything like them, and I'm positive one came and perched somewhere just outside our window. If it had come in, I should have been out of my wits. It must have been a very large bird from its voice. Didn't you hear it? No, of course not. You were sound asleep, as usual. Still, I must say, George, you don't look as if your night had done you much good. My dear, I feel as if another of the same would turn me silly. You have no idea of the dreams I had. I couldn't speak of them when I woke up, and if this room wasn't so bright and sunny, I shouldn't care to think of them even now. Well, really, George, that isn't very common with you, I must say. You must have... No, you only had what I had yesterday, unless you had tea at that wretched clubhouse, did you? No, no, nothing but a cup of tea and some bread and butter. I should really like to know how I came to put my dream together, as I suppose one does put one's dream together from a lot of little things one has been seeing or reading. Look here, Mary, it was like this, if I shan't be boring you. I wish to hear what it was, George. I will tell you when I have had enough. All right. I must tell you that it wasn't like other nightmares in one way, because I didn't really see anyone who spoke to me or touched me. And yet I was most fearfully impressed with the reality of it all. First, I was sitting, no, no, moving about in an old-fashioned sort of panelled room. I remember there was a fireplace and a lot of burnt papers in it and I was in a great state of anxiety about something. There was someone else, a servant, I suppose, because I remember saying to him, Horses, as quick as you can, and then waiting a bit. And next I heard several people coming upstairs, and a noise like spurs on a boarded floor. And then the door opened, and whatever it was that I was expecting happened. Yes, but what was that? You see, 
I couldn't tell. It was the sort of shock that upsets you in a dream. You either wake up or else everything goes black. That was what happened to me. Then I was in a big dark-walled room, panelled, I think, like the other, and a number of people, and I was evidently standing your trial, I suppose, George? Goodness, yes, Mary, I was. But did you dream that too? How very odd. No, no, I didn't get enough sleep for that. Go on, George, and I will tell you afterwards. Yes, well, I was being tried, for my life, I've no doubt, from the state I was in. I had no one speaking for me, and somewhere there was a most fearful fellow, on the bench, I should have said, only that he seemed to be pitching into me most unfairly, and twisting everything I said, and asking most abominable questions. What about? Why, dates when I was at particular places, and letters I was supposed to have written, and why I had destroyed some papers, and I recollect his laughing at answers I made, in a way that quite daunted me. It doesn't sound much, but I can tell you, Mary, it was really appalling at the time. I'm quite certain there was such a man once, and a most horrible villain he must have been. The things he said... Thank you. I have no wish to hear them. I can go to the links any day myself. How did it end? Oh, against me. He saw to that. I do wish, Mary, I could give you a notion of the strain that came after that, and seemed to me to last for days, waiting and waiting, and sometimes writing things I knew to be enormously important to me, and waiting for answers, and none coming. And after that, I came out, ah, what makes you say that? Do you know what sort of thing I saw? Was it a dark, cold day, and snow in the streets, and a fire burning somewhere near you? By George, it was. You have had the same nightmare. Really not? Well, it is the oddest thing. Yes, I've no doubt it was an execution for high treason. I know I was laid on straw, and jolted along most wretchedly, and then had to go up some steps, and someone was holding my arm, and I remember seeing a bit of a ladder, and hearing a sound of a lot of people. I really don't think I could bear now to go into a crowd of people and hear the noise they make talking. However, mercifully, I didn't get to the real business. The dream passed off with a sort of thunder inside my head. But, Mary, I know what you're going to ask. I suppose this is an instance of a kind of thought-reading. Miss Wilkins called yesterday and told me of a dream her brother had as a child when they lived here. And something did, no doubt, make me think of that when I was awake last night, listening to those horrible owls and those men talking and laughing in the shrubbery. By the way, I wish you would see if they have done any damage and speak to the police about it. And so, I suppose, from my brain it must have got into yours while you were asleep. Curious, no doubt, and I am sorry it gave you such a bad night. You had better be as much in the fresh air as you can today. Oh, it's all right now but I think I will go over to the lodge and see if I can get a game with any of them. And you? I have enough to do for this morning, and this afternoon, if I am not interrupted, there is my drawing. To be sure, 
I wanted to see that finished very much. No damage was discoverable in the shrubbery. Mr. Anstruther surveyed with faint interest the site of the rose garden, where the uprooted post still lay, and the hole it had occupied remained unfilled. Collins, upon inquiry made, proved to be better, but quite unable to come to his work. He expressed, by the mouth of his wife, a hope that he hadn't done nothing wrong clearing away them things. Mrs. Collins added that there was a lot of talking people in Westfield, and the whole ones was the worst. Seemed to think everything of them having been in the parish longer than what other people had. But as to what they said, no more could then be ascertained than that it had quite upset Collins, and was a lot of nonsense. Recruited by lunch and a brief period of slumber, Mrs. Anstruther settled herself comfortably upon her sketching chair in the path leading through the shrubbery to the side gate of the churchyard. Trees and buildings were among her favourite subjects, and here she had good studies of both. She worked hard, and the drawing was becoming a really pleasant thing to look upon by the time that the wooded hills to the west had shut off the sun. Still, she would have persevered, but the light changed rapidly, and it became obvious that the last touches must be added on the morrow. She rose and turned towards the house, pausing for a time to take delight in the limpid green western sky. Then she passed on between the dark box bushes, and at a point just before the path debouched on the lawn, she stopped once again and considered the quiet evening landscape, and made a mental note that that must be the tower of one of the roofing churches that one caught on the skyline. Then a bird, perhaps, rustled in the box-bush on her left, and she turned, and started at seeing what at first she took to be a 5th of November mask, peeping out among the branches. She looked closer. It was not a mask. It was a face, large, smooth, and pink. She remembers the minute drops of perspiration which were starting from its forehead. She remembers how the jaws were clean-shaven and the eyes shut. She remembers also, and with an accuracy which makes the thought intolerable to her, how the mouth was open and a single tooth appeared below the upper lip. As she looked, the face receded into the darkness of the bush. The shelter of the house was gained and the door shut before she collapsed. Mr. and Mrs. Anstruther had been for a week or more recruiting at Brighton before they received a circular from the Essex Archaeological Society and a query as to whether they possessed certain historical portraits which it was desired to include in the forthcoming work on Essex portraits to be published under the Society's auspices. There was an accompanying letter from the secretary which contained the following passage. We are specially anxious to know whether you possess the original of the engraving of which I enclose a photograph. It represents Sir blank, blank, Lord Chief Justice under Charles II, who, as you doubtless know, retired after his disgrace to Westfield, and is supposed to have died there of remorse. It may interest you to hear that a curious entry has recently been found in the registers, not of Westfield, but of Prior's Ruthing, to the effect that the parish was so much troubled after his death that the rector of Westfield summoned the parsons of all the Ruthings to come and lay him. 
which they did. The entry ends by saying, The stake is in a field adjoining to the churchyard of Westfield, on the west side. Perhaps you can let us know if any tradition to this effect is current in your parish. The incidents which the enclosed photograph recalled were productive of a severe shock to Mrs. Anstruther. It was decided that she must spend the winter abroad. Mr. Anstruther, when he went down to Westfield to make the necessary arrangements, not unnaturally told his story to the rector, an old gentleman, who showed little surprise. Really, I had managed to piece out for myself very much what must have happened, partly from old people's talk, and partly from what I saw in your grounds. Of course, we have suffered to some extent also. Yes, it was bad at first, like owls, as you say, and men talking sometimes. One night it was in this garden, and at other times about several of the cottages. But lately there has been very little. I think it will die out. There is nothing in our registers except the entry of the burial, and what I, for a long time, took to be the family motto. But last time I looked at it, I noticed that it was added in a later hand, and had the initials of one of our rectors quite late in the 17th century, A.C. Augustine Crompton. Here it is, you see, Quieta non movere. I suppose, well, it is rather hard to say exactly what I do suppose. Midoth. Towards the end of an autumn afternoon, an elderly man with a thin face and grey Piccadilly weepers pushed open the swing door leading into the vestibule of a certain famous library, and, addressing himself to an attendant, stated that he believed he was entitled to use the library, and inquired if he might take a book out. Yes, if he were on the list of those to whom that privilege was given. He produced his card, Mr. John Eldred, and, the register being consulted, a favourable answer was given. Now, another point, said he. It is a long time since I was here, and I do not know my way about your building. Besides, it is near closing time, and it is bad for me to hurry up and downstairs. I have here the title of the book I want. Is there anyone at liberty who could go and find it for me? After a moment's thought, the doorkeeper beckoned to a young man who was passing. Mr. Garrett, he said, have you a minute to assist this gentleman? With pleasure, was Mr. Garrett's answer. The slip with the title was handed to him. I think I can put my hand on this. It happens to be in the class I inspected last quarter, but I'll just look it up in the catalogue to make sure. I suppose it is that particular edition that you require, sir? Yes, if you please. That and no other, said Mr. Eldred. I'm exceedingly obliged to you. Don't mention it, I beg, sir, said Mr. Garrett, and hurried off. I thought so, he said to himself, when his finger, travelling down the pages of the catalogue, stopped at a particular entry. Talmud, Tractate Midoth, with the commentary of Nachmanides, 
Amsterdam, 1707. 11, 3, 34. Hebrew class, of course. Not a very difficult job, this. Mr. Eldred, accommodated with a chair in the vestibule, awaited anxiously the return of his messenger, and his disappointment at seeing an empty-handed Mr. Garrett running down the staircase was very evident. I'm sorry to disappoint you, sir, said the young man, but the book is out. Oh, dear, said Mr. Eldred. Is that so? You are sure there can be no mistake? I don't think there is much chance of it, sir, but it's possible, if you'd like to wait a minute, that you might meet the very gentleman that's got it. He must be leaving the library soon, and I think I saw him take that particular book out of the shelf. Indeed. You didn't recognize him, I suppose. Would it be one of the professors or one of the students? I don't think so. Certainly not a professor. I should have known him. But the light isn't very good in that part of the library at this time of day. And I didn't see his face. I should have said he was a shortish old gentleman, perhaps a clergyman, in a cloak. If you could wait, I can easily find out whether he wants the book very particularly. No, no, said Mr. Eldred. I won't... Uh, I can't wait now, thank you. No, I must be off. But I'll call again tomorrow, if I may, and perhaps you could find out who has it. Certainly, sir. And I'll have the book ready for you if we... Uh... But Mr. Eldred was already off, and hurrying more than one would have thought wholesome for him. Garrett had a few moments to spare, and, thought he, I'll go back to that case and see if I can find the old man. Most likely he could put off using the book for a few days. I dare say the other one doesn't want to keep it for long. So off with him to the Hebrew class. But when he got there, it was unoccupied, and the volume, marked 11.3.34, was in its place on the shelf. It was vexatious to Garrett's self-respect to have disappointed an inquirer with so little reason, and he would have liked, had it not been against library rules, to take the book down to the vestibule then and there, so that it might be ready for Mr. Eldred when he called. However, next morning he would be on the lookout for him, and he begged the doorkeeper to send and let him know when the moment came. As a matter of fact, he was himself in the vestibule when Mr. Eldred arrived, very soon after the library opened, and when hardly anyone beside the staff were in the building. I'm very sorry, he said. It's not often that I make such a stupid mistake, but I did feel sure that the old gentleman I saw took out that very book, and kept it in his hand without opening it, just as people do, you know, sir, when they mean to take a book out of the library and not merely refer to it. But, however, I'll run up now at once and get it for you this time. And here intervened a pause. Mr. Eldred paced the entry, read all the notices, consulted his watch, sat and gazed up the staircase, did all that a very impatient man could, until some twenty minutes had run out. At last he addressed himself to the doorkeeper, and inquired if it was a very long way to that part of the library to which Mr. Garrett had gone. Well, I was thinking it was funny, sir. He's a quick man as a rule, but to be sure he might have been sent for by the librarian. But even so, I think he'd have mentioned it to him, that you was waiting. I'll just speak him up on the tube and see and to the tube he addressed himself. As he absorbed the reply to his question, his face changed, and he made one or two supplementary inquiries which were shortly answered. Then he came forward to his counter and spoke in a lower tone, I'm sorry to hear, sir, that something seems to have happened a little awkward. 
Mr. Garrett has been took poorly, it appears, and the librarian sent him home in a cab the other way. Something of an attack, by what I can hear. What, really? Do you mean that someone has injured him? No, sir, not violence here, but, as I should judge, attacked with an attack, what you might term it, of illness. Not a strong constitution, Mr. Garrett. As to your book, sir, perhaps you might be able to find it for yourself. It's too bad you should be disappointed this way twice over. Ah, uh, well, but I'm so sorry that Mr. Garrett should have been taken ill in this way while he was obliging me. I think I must leave the book and call and inquire after him. You can give me his address, I suppose. That was easily done. Mr. Garrett, it appeared, lodged in rooms not far from the station. And uh, one other question. Did you happen to notice if an old gentleman, perhaps a clergyman, in a... Uh, yes, in a black cloak, left the library after I did yesterday? I think he may have been... Uh, I think, that is, that he may be staying, or... or rather, that I may have known him. Not in a black cloak, sir. No. There were only two gentlemen left later than what you'd done, sir. Both of them youngish men. There was Mr. Carter took out a music book, and one of the professors with a couple of novels. That's the lot, sir. And then I went off to me tea, and glad to get it. Thank you, sir. Much obliged. Mr. Eldred, still a prey to anxiety, betook himself in a cab to Mr. Garrett's address. But the young man was not yet in a condition to receive visitors. He was better but his landlady considered that he must have had a severe shock. She thought, most likely, from what the doctor said, that he would be able to see Mr. Eldred tomorrow. Mr. Eldred returned to his hotel at dusk, and spent, I fear, but a dull evening. On the next day he was able to see Mr. Garrett. When in health, Mr. Garrett was a cheerful and pleasant-looking young man. Now. He was a very white and shaky being, propped up in an armchair by the fire, and inclined to shiver and keep an eye on the door. If, however, there were visitors whom he was not prepared to welcome, Mr. Eldred was not among them. It really is I who owe you an apology, and I was despairing of being able to pay it, for I didn't know your address, but I am very glad you have called. I do dislike and regret giving all this trouble. But, you know, I could not have foreseen this, this attack which I had. Of course not, but now I am something of a doctor. You'll excuse my asking. You have had, I'm sure, good advice. Was it a fall you had? No, I did fall on the floor, but not from any height. It was really a shock. You mean something startled you? Was it anything you thought you saw? Not much thinking in the case, I'm afraid. Yes, it was something I saw. You remember when you called the first time at the library? Yes, of course. Let me beg you not to try to describe it. It will not be good for you to recall it, I'm sure. But indeed, it would be a relief to me to tell anyone like yourself. You might be able to explain it away. It was just when I was going into the class where your book is. Indeed, Mr. Garrett. I insist. Besides, my watch tells me I have but very little time left in which to get my things together and to take the train. No, not another word. It would be more distressing to you than you imagine, perhaps. Now, there is just one thing I want to say. I feel that I am really indirectly responsible for this illness of yours. 
and I think I ought to defray the expense which it has, uh... But this offer was quite distinctly declined. Mr. Eldred, not pressing it, left almost at once. Not, however, before Mr. Garrett had insisted upon his taking a note of the class mark of the Tractate Midoth, which, as he said, Mr. Eldred could at leisure get for himself. But Mr. Eldred did not reappear at the library. William Garrett had another visitor that day in the person of a contemporary and colleague from the library, one George Earl. Earl had been one of those who found Garrett lying insensible on the floor, just inside the class or cubicle, opening upon the central alley of a spacious gallery, in which the Hebrew books were placed, and Earl had naturally been very anxious about his friend's condition. So, as soon as library hours were over, he appeared at the lodgings. Well, he said, after some conversation, I've no notion what it was that put you wrong, but I've got the idea that there's something wrong in the atmosphere of the library. I know this, that just before we found you, I was coming along the gallery with Davis, and I said to him, Did you ever know such a musty smell anywhere as there is about here? It can't be wholesome. Well now, if one goes on living a long time with a smell of that kind, I tell you it was worse than I ever knew it. It must get into the system and break out sometime, don't you think? Garrett shook his head. That's all very well about the smell, but it isn't always there. Though I've noticed it the last day or two. A sort of unnaturally strong smell of dust. But no, that's not what it did for me. It was something I saw. And I wanted to tell you about it. I went into that Hebrew class to get a book for a man that was inquiring for it down below. Now, that same book I'd made a mistake about the day before. I'd been for it for the same man and made sure that I saw an old parson in a cloak taking it out. I told my man it was out. Off he went to call again next day. I went back to see if I could get it out of the parson. No parson there and the book on the shelf. Well, yesterday, as I say, I went again. This time, if you please, ten o'clock in the morning, you remember, and as much light as ever you get in those classes. And there was my parson again, back to me, looking at the books on the shelf I wanted. His hat was on the table, and he had a bald head. I waited a second or two, looking at him rather particularly. I tell you, he had a very nasty bald head. It looked to me dry, and it looked dusty and the streaks of hair across it were much less like hair than cobwebs. Well, I made a bit of a noise on purpose, coughed and moved my feet. He turned round and let me see his face, which I hadn't seen before. I tell you again, I'm not mistaken, though for one reason or another I didn't take in the lower part of his face. I did see the upper part, and it was perfectly dry, and the eyes were very deep sunk and over them, from the eyebrows to the cheekbone, there were cobwebs, thick. Now that closed me up, as they say, and I can't tell you anything more. What explanations were furnished by Earl of this phenomenon, it does not very much concern us to inquire. At all events, they did not convince Garrett that he had not seen what he had seen. Before William Garrett returned to work at the library, 
the librarian insisted upon his taking a week's rest and change of air. Within a few days' time, therefore, he was at the station with his bag, looking for a desirable smoking compartment in which to travel to Burnstow-on-Sea, which he had not previously visited. One compartment, and one only, seemed to be suitable, but just as he approached it, he saw, standing in front of the door, a figure so like, one bound up with recent unpleasant associations, that with a sickening qualm and hardly knowing what he did, he tore open the door of the next compartment and pulled himself into it as quickly as if death were at his heels. The train moved off, and he must have turned quite faint, for he was next conscious of a smelling bottle being put to his nose. His physician was a nice-looking old lady, who with her daughter was the only passenger in the carriage. But for this incident, it is not very likely that he would have made any overtures to his fellow travellers. As it was, thanks and inquiries and general conversation supervened inevitably, and Garrett found himself provided before the journey's end, not only with a physician, but with a landlady, for Mrs. Simpson had apartments to let at Burnstow, which seemed in all ways suitable. The place was empty at that season, so that Garrett was thrown a good deal into the society of the mother and daughter. He found them very acceptable company. On the third evening of his stay, he was on such terms with them as to be asked to spend the evening in their private sitting-room. During their talk, it transpired that Garrett's work lay in a library. Ah, libraries are fine places, said Mrs. Simpson, putting down her work with a sigh. But for all that, books have played me a sad turn, or rather, a book has. Well, books give me my living, Mrs. Simpson, and I should be sorry to say a word against them. I don't like to hear that they've been bad for you. Perhaps Mr. Garrett could help us to solve our puzzle, Mother, said Miss Simpson. I don't want to set Mr. Garrett off on a hunt that might waste a lifetime, my dear, nor yet to trouble him with our private affairs. But if you think it in the least likely that I could be of use, I do beg you to tell me what the puzzle is, Mrs. Simpson. If it is finding out anything about a book, you see, I'm in rather a good position to do it. Yes, I do see that, but the worst of it is that we don't know the name of the book, nor what it is about. No, nor that either, except that we don't think it's in English, Mother, and that is not much of a clue. Well, Mr. Garrett, said Mrs. Simpson, who had not yet resumed her work and was looking at the fire thoughtfully, I shall tell you the story. You will please keep it to yourself, if you don't mind. Thank you. Now, it is just this. I had an old uncle, Dr. Rant. Perhaps you may have heard of him. Not that he was a distinguished man, but from the odd way he chose to be buried. I rather think I have seen the name in some guidebook. That would be it, said Miss Simpson. He left directions, horrid old man, that he was to be put sitting at a table in his ordinary clothes, in a brick room that he'd had made underground in a field near his house. Of course, the country people say he's been seen about there in his old black cloak. Well, dear, I don't know much about such things, Mrs. Simpson went on, but anyhow, he is dead these twenty years and more. He was a clergyman, though I'm sure I can't imagine how he got to be one. 
but he did no duty for the last part of his life, which I think was a good thing, and he lived on his own property, a very nice estate, not a great way from here. He had no wife or family, only one niece, who was myself, and one nephew, and he had no particular liking for either of us, nor for anyone else as far as that goes. If anything, he liked my cousin better than he did me, for John was much more like him in his temper, and I'm afraid I must say his very mean, sharp ways. It might have been different if I had not married, but I did, and that he very much resented. Very well, here he was, with this estate and a good deal of money, as it turned out, of which he had the absolute disposal, and it was understood that we, my cousin and I, would share it equally at his death. In a certain winter, over twenty years back, as I said, he was taken ill, and I was sent for to nurse him. My husband was alive then, but the old man would not hear of his coming. As I drove up to the house, I saw my cousin John driving away from it, in an open fly, and looking, I noticed, in very good spirits. I went up, and did what I could for my uncle, but I was very soon sure that this would be his last illness, and he was convinced of it too. During the day before he died, he got me to sit by him all the time, and I could see that there was something, and probably something unpleasant, that he was saving up to tell me, and putting it off as long as he felt he could afford the strength, I'm afraid purposely, in order to keep me on the stretch, but at last out it came. Mary, he said, Mary, I've made my will in John's favour. He has everything, Mary. Well, of course, that came as a bitter shock to me, for we, my husband and I, were not rich people, and if he could have managed to live a little easier than he was obliged to do, I felt it might be the prolonging of his life. But I said little or nothing to my uncle except that he had a right to do what he pleased, partly because I couldn't think of anything to say, and partly because I was sure there was more to come, and so there was. But Mary, he said, I'm not very fond of John, and I've made another will in your favour. You can have everything. Only, you've got to find the will, you see, and I don't mean to tell you where it is. Then he chuckled to himself, and I waited, for again I was sure he hadn't finished. That's a good girl, he said after a time. You wait, and I'll tell you as much as I told John. But just let me remind you, you can't go into court with what I'm saying to you, for you won't be able to produce any collateral evidence beyond your own word, and John's a man that can do a little hard swearing if necessary. Very well then, that's understood. Now I had the fancy that I wouldn't write this will quite in the common way, so I wrote it in a book, Mary, a printed book, and there's several thousand books in this house, but there, you needn't trouble yourself with them, for it isn't one of them. It's in safekeeping elsewhere, in a place where John can go and find it any day, if he only knew. And you can't. A good will it is, properly signed and witnessed, but I don't think you'll find the witnesses in a hurry. Still, I said nothing. If I had moved at all, 
I must have taken hold of the old wretch and shaken him. He lay there laughing to himself, and at last he said, Well, well, you've taken it very quietly. And as I wanted to start you both on equal terms, and John has a bit of a purchase in being able to go where the book is, I'll tell you just two other things which I didn't tell him. The will's in English, but you won't know that if you ever see it. That's one thing. And another is that when I'm gone, you'll find an envelope in my desk directed to you, and inside it, something that would help you to find it, if only you have the wits to use it. In a few hours from that, he was gone, and though I made an appeal to John Eldred about it, John Eldred? I beg your pardon, Mrs. Simpson. I think I've seen a Mr. John Eldred. What is he like to look at? It must be ten years since I saw him. He would be a thin elderly man now, and unless he's shaved them off, he has that sort of whiskers which people used to call Dundreary or Piccadilly something. Weepers. Yes, that is the man. Where did you come across him, Mr. Garrett? I don't know if I could tell you, said Garrett mendaciously, in some public place. But you hadn't finished. Really, I had nothing much to add, only that John Eldred, of course, paid no attention whatever to my letters, and has enjoyed the estate ever since, while my daughter and I have had to take to the lodging-house business here, which I must say has not turned out by any means so unpleasant as I feared it might. But about the envelope? Oh, to be sure. Why, the puzzle turns on that. Give Mr. Garrett the paper out of my desk. It was a small slip, with nothing whatever on it but five numerals, not divided or punctuated in any way. One, one, three, three, four. Mr. Garrett pondered, but there was a light in his eye. Suddenly he made a face and then asked, Do you suppose that Mr. Eldred can have any more clue than you have to the title of the book? I have sometimes thought he must, said Mrs. Simpson, and in this way, that my uncle must have made the will not very long before he died. That, I think, he said himself, and got rid of the book immediately afterwards. But all his books were very carefully catalogued, and John has the catalogue, and John was most particular that no books whatever should be sold out of the house. And I'm told that he is always journeying about to booksellers and libraries, so I fancy that he must have found out just which books are missing from my uncle's library of those which are entered in the catalogue and must be hunting for them. Just so, just so, said Mr. Garrett, and relapsed into thought. No later than next day, he received a letter which, as he told Mrs. Simpson with great regret, made it absolutely necessary for him to cut short his stay at Burnstow. Sorry as he was to leave them, and they were at least as sorry to part with him, he had begun to feel that a crisis, all important to Mrs., and shall we add, Miss, Simpson, was very possibly supervening. In the train, Garrett was uneasy and excited. He racked his brains to think whether the press mark of the book which Mr. Eldred had been inquiring after was one in any way corresponding to the numbers on Mrs. Simpson's little bit of paper. But he found, to his dismay, that the shock of the previous week had really so upset him that he could neither remember any vestige of the title or nature of the book. 
or even of the locality to which he had gone to seek it. And yet, all other parts of library topography and work were clear as ever in his mind. And another thing, he stamped with annoyance as he thought of it. He had at first hesitated and then had forgotten to ask Mrs. Simpson for the name of the place where Eldred lived. That, however, he could write about. At least he had his clue in the figures on the paper. If they referred to a press mark in his library, they were only susceptible of a limited number of interpretations. They might be divided into 1, 13, 34, 11, 33, 4, or 11, 3, 34. He could try all these in the space of a few minutes, and if any one were missing, he had every means of tracing it. He got very quickly to work, though a few minutes had to be spent in explaining his early return to his landlady and his colleagues. 1, 13, 34 was in place, and contained no extraneous writing. As he drew near to class 11 in the same gallery, its association struck him like a chill. But he must go on. After a cursory glance at 11, 33, 4, which first confronted him, and was a perfectly new book, he ran his eye along the line of quartos which fills 11.3. The gap, he feared, was there. 34 was out. A moment was spent in making sure that it had not been misplaced, and then he was off to the vestibule. Has 11.3.34 gone out? Do you recollect noticing that number? Notice the number? What do you take me for, Mr. Garrett? There, take and look over the ticket for yourself if you've got a free day before you. Well then, has a Mr. Eldred called again? The old gentleman who came the day I was taken ill. Come, you'd remember him. What do you suppose? Of course I recollect of him. He haven't been in again, not since you went off for your holiday. And yet, I seem to... There now, Roberts will know. Roberts, do you recollect of the name of Eldred? Not half, said Roberts. You mean the man that sent a bob over the price for the parcel? I wish they all did. Do you mean to say you've been sending books to Mr. Eldred? Come, do speak up. Have you? Well now, Mr. Garrett, if a gentleman sends the ticket all wrote correct and the secretary says his book may go and the box ready addressed sent with the note and a sum of money sufficient to defray the railway charges, what would be your action in the matter, Mr. Garrett, if I may take the liberty to ask such a question? Would you, or would you not, have taken the trouble to oblige? Or would you have chucked the old thing under the counter? And you are perfectly right, of course, Hodgson, perfectly right. Only, would you kindly oblige me by showing me the ticket Mr. Eldred sent and letting me know his address? To be sure, Mr. Garrett, so long as I'm not acted about and informed that I don't know me duty, I'm willing to oblige in every way feasible to my power. There is the ticket on the file. J. Eldred, 11... 3.34, title of work, T-A-L-M, well, there you can make out what you like of it. Not a novel, I should hazard the guess. And here is Mr. Heldred's note, applying for the book in question, which I see he terms it a track. Thanks, thanks, but the address? There's none on the note. Ah, indeed. Well, now, stay now, Mr. Garrett, I have it. Why, that note came inside of the parcel which was directed very thoughtful to save all the trouble, ready to be sent back with the book inside. And if I 
have made any mistake in this whole transaction, it lays just in the one point that I neglected to enter the address in my little book here, what I keep. Not but what I dare say there was good reasons for me not entering of it, but there are. I haven't the time, neither have you, I dare say, to go into them just now. And no, Mr. Garrett, I do not carry it in my head. Else, what would be the use of me keeping this little book here? Just ordinary common notebook, you see, which I make a practice of entering all such names and addresses in it as I see fit to do. Admirable arrangement, to be sure. But, all right, thank you. When did the parcel go off? Half past ten this morning. Oh, good, and it's just one now. Garrett went upstairs in deep thought. How was he to get the address? A telegram to Mrs. Simpson. He might miss a train by waiting for the answer. Yes, there was one other way. She had said that Eldred lived on his uncle's estate. If this were so, he might find that place entered in the donation book. That he could run through quickly, now that he knew the title of the book. The register was soon before him, and knowing that the old man had died more than twenty years ago, he gave him a good margin and turned back to 1870. There was but one entry possible. 1875, August 14th, Talmud, Tractatus Midoth Cum Com R. Nachmanidi, Amstelod, 1707, given by J. Rant, D.D., of Bretfield Manor. A gazetteer showed Bretfield to be three miles from a small station on the main line. Now to ask the doorkeeper whether he recollected if the name on the parcel had been anything like Bretfield. No, nothing like. It was, now you mention it, Mr. Garrett, either Breadfield or Britfield, but nothing like that other name what you coated. So far, well. Next, a timetable. The train could be got in twenty minutes, taking two hours over the journey. The only chance, but not one to be missed, and the train was taken. If he had been fidgety on the journey up, he was almost distracted on the journey down. If he found Eldred, what could he say? That it had been discovered that the book was a rarity, it must be recalled, an obvious untruth, or that it was believed to contain important manuscript notes. Eldred would of course show him the book, from which the leaf would already have been removed. He might perhaps find traces of the removal, a torn edge of a flyleaf probably. And who could disprove what Eldred was certain to say, that he too had noticed and regretted the mutilation. Altogether the chase seemed very hopeless. The one chance was this. The book had left the library at 10.30. It might not have been put into the first possible train at 11.20. Granted that, then he might be lucky enough to arrive simultaneously with it and patch up some story which would induce Eldred to give it up. It was drawing towards evening when he got out upon the platform of his station, and like most country stations, this one seemed unnaturally quiet. He waited about till the one or two passengers who got out with him had drifted off, and then inquired of the stationmaster whether Mr. Eldred was in the neighbourhood. Yes, and pretty near to, I believe. I fancy he means calling here for a parcel he expects. Called for it once today already, didn't he, Bob? To the porter. Yes, sir, he did, and appeared to think that it was all along of me that it didn't come by the two o'clock. Anyhow, I've got it for him now. And the porter, 
flourished a square parcel, which, a glance assured Garrett, contained all that was of any importance to him at that particular moment. Brettfield, sir? Yes, three miles just about. Shortcut across these three fields brings it down by half a mile. There, there's Mr. Eldred's trap. A dog cart drove up with two men in it, of whom Garrett, gazing back as he crossed the little station yard, easily recognised one. The fact that Eldred was driving was slightly in his favour, for most likely he would not open the parcel in the presence of his servant. On the other hand, he would get home quickly, and unless Garrett were there within a very few minutes of his arrival, all would be over. He must hurry, and that he did. His shortcut took him along one side of a triangle, while the cart had two sides to traverse, and it was delayed a little at the station, so that Garrett was in the third of the three fields when he heard the wheels fairly near. He had made the best progress possible, but the pace at which the cart was coming made him despair. At this rate, it must reach home ten minutes before him, and ten minutes would more than suffice for the fulfilment of Mr. Eldred's project. It was just at this time that the luck fairly turned. The evening was still, and sounds came clearly. Seldom has any sound given greater relief than that which he now heard, that of the cart pulling up. A few words were exchanged, and it drove on. Garrett, halting in the utmost anxiety, was able to see, as it drove past the stile near which he now stood, that it contained only the servant, and not Eldred. Further, he made out that Eldred was following on foot. From behind the tall hedge by the stile leading into the road, he watched the thin, wiry figure pass quickly by with the parcel beneath its arm, and feeling in its pockets. Just as he passed the stile, something fell out of a pocket upon the grass, but with so little sound that Eldred was not conscious of it. In a moment more, it was safe for Garrett to cross the stile into the road, and pick up a box of matches. Eldred went on, and as he went, his arms made hasty movements, difficult to interpret in the shadow of the trees that overhung the road. But as Garrett followed cautiously, he found at various points the key to them, a piece of string, and then the wrapper of the parcel, meant to be thrown over the hedge but sticking in it. Now Eldred was walking slower, and it could just be made out that he had opened the book and was turning over the leaves. He stopped, evidently troubled by the failing light. Garrett slipped into a gate opening, but still watched. Eldred, hastily looking round, sat down on a felled tree trunk by the roadside, and held the open book up close to his eyes. Suddenly, he laid it, still open, on his knee, and felt in all his pockets, clearly in vain, and clearly to his annoyance. You would be glad of your matches now, thought Garrett. Then he took hold of a leaf, and was carefully tearing it out, when two things happened. First, something black seemed to drop upon the white leaf and run down it. And then, as Eldred started, and was turning to look behind him, a little dark form appeared to rise out of the shadow behind the tree trunk, and from it, two arms enclosing a mass of blackness came before Eldred's face and covered his head and neck. His legs and arms were wildly flourished, but no sound came. Then there was no more movement. 
Eldred, was alone. He had fallen back into the grass behind the tree trunk. The book was cast into the roadway. Garrett, his anger and suspicion gone for the moment at the sight of this horrid struggle, rushed up with loud cries of help, and so too, to his enormous relief, did a labourer who had just emerged from a field opposite. Together they bent over and supported Eldred, but to no purpose. The conclusion that he was dead was inevitable. Poor gentleman, said Garrett to the labourer when they had laid him down. What happens to him, do you think? I wasn't two hundred yards away, said the man, when I seen Squire Eldred sitting reading in his book, and to my thinking, he was took with one of these fits. Face seemed to go all over black. Just so, said Garrett. You didn't see anyone near him. It couldn't have been an assault. Not possible. No one couldn't have got away without you or me seeing him. So I thought, well, we must get some help and the doctor and the policeman, and perhaps I had better give them this book. It was obviously a case for an inquest, and obvious also that Garrett must stay at Bretfield and give his evidence. The medical inspection showed that, though some black dust were found on the face and in the mouth of the deceased, the cause of death was a shock to a weak heart and not asphyxiation. The fateful book was produced, a respectable quarto printed wholly in Hebrew, and not of an aspect likely to excite even the most sensitive. You say, Mr. Garrett, that the deceased gentleman appeared at the moment before his attack to be tearing a leaf out of this book. Yes, I think one of the fly-leaves. There is here a fly-leaf partially torn through. It has Hebrew writing on it. Will you kindly inspect it? There are three names in English, sir, also, and a date, but I am sorry to say that I cannot read Hebrew writing. Thank you. The names have the appearance of being signatures. They are John Rant, Walter Gibson, and James Frost, and the date is 20th of July, 1875. Does anyone here know of any of these names? The rector, who was present, volunteered a statement that the uncle of the deceased, from whom he inherited, had been named Rent. The book being handed to him, he shook a puzzled head. This is not like any Hebrew I ever learned. You are sure that it is Hebrew? What? Yes, I suppose. No, my dear sir, you're perfectly right. That is, your suggestion is exactly to the point. Of course, it is not Hebrew at all, it is English. And it is a will. It did not take many minutes to show but here, indeed, was a will of Dr. John Rant, bequeathing the whole of the property lately held by John Eldred to Mrs. Mary Simpson. Clearly, the discovery of such a document would amply justify Mr. Eldred's agitation. As to the partial tearing of the leaf, the coroner pointed out that no useful purpose could be attained by speculations whose correctness it would never be possible to establish. The tractate Midoth was naturally taken in charge by the coroner for further investigation, and Mr. Garrett explained privately to him the history of it and the position of events so far as he knew or guessed them. He returned to his work next day, and on his walk to the station passed the scene of Mr. Eldred's catastrophe. He could hardly leave it without another look, though the recollection of what he had seen there made him shiver even on that bright morning. He walked round with some misgivings behind the felled tree, 
Something dark that still lay there made him start back for a moment, but it hardly stirred. Looking closer, he saw that it was a thick black mass of cobwebs, and as he stirred it gingerly with his stick, several large spiders ran out of it into the grass. There is no great difficulty in imagining the steps by which William Garrett, from being an assistant in a great library, attained to his present position of prospective owner of Bretfield Manor, now in the occupation of his mother-in-law, Mrs. Mary Simpson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how to volunteer, please contact LibriVox.org. Recording by Peter Yearsley. Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James. Reader's Note. In the following text, a number of dates and names are missing. These are represented in the reading by the word blank. End of reader's note. Casting the Runes April 15th, 190 Dear Sir, I am requested by the Council of the Association to return to you the draft of a paper on the truth of alchemy, which you have been good enough to offer to read at our forthcoming meeting and to inform you that the Council do not see their way to including it in the programme. I am, yours faithfully, blank, Secretary. April the 18th. Dear Sir, I am sorry to say that my engagements do not permit of my affording you an interview on the subject of your proposed paper, nor do our laws allow of your discussing the matter with a committee of our Council, as you suggest. Please allow me to assure you that the fullest consideration was given to the draft which you submitted, and that it was not declined without having been referred to the judgment of a most competent authority. No personal question, it can hardly be necessary for me to add, can have had the slightest influence on the decision of the Council. Believe me, Ut Supra. April the 20th. The Secretary of the blank, Association begs respectfully to inform Mr. Carswell that it is impossible for him to communicate the name of any person or persons to whom the draft of Mr. Carswell's paper may have been submitted, and further desires to intimate that he cannot undertake to reply to any further letters on this subject. And who is Mr. Carswell? inquired the secretary's wife. She had called at his office and, perhaps unwarrantably, had picked up the last of these three letters, which the typist had just brought in. Why, my dear, just at present Mr. Carswell is a very angry man, but I don't know much about him otherwise, except that he is a person of wealth, his address is Lufford Abbey, Warwickshire, 
and he's an alchemist apparently and wants to tell us all about it and that's about all except that I don't want to meet him for the next week or two now if you're ready to leave this place I am what have you been doing to make him angry asked Mrs. Secretary the usual thing my dear the usual thing he sent in a draft of a paper he wanted to read at the next meeting and we referred it to Edward Dunning almost the only man in England who knows about these things and he said it was perfectly hopeless so we declined it so Carswell has been pelting me with letters ever since the last thing he wanted was the name of the man we referred his nonsense to you saw my answer to that but don't you say anything about it for goodness sake I should think not indeed did I ever do such a thing I do hope though he won't get to know that it was poor Mr. Dunning poor Mr. Dunning I don't know why you call him that he's a very happy man is Dunning lots of hobbies and a comfortable home and all his time to himself I only meant that I should be sorry for him if this man got hold of his name and came and bothered him oh ah yes I dare say he would be poor Mr. Dunning then the secretary and his wife were lunching out and the friends to whose house they were bound were Warwickshire people so Mrs. Secretary had already settled it in her own mind that she would question them judiciously about Mr. Carswell but she was saved the trouble of leading up to the subject for the hostess said to the host before many minutes had passed I saw the abbot of Lufford this morning the host whistled did you? what in the world brings him up to town? goodness knows he was coming out of the British Museum gate as I drove past it was not unnatural that Mrs. Secretary should inquire whether this was a real abbot who was being spoken of oh no my dear only a neighbour of ours in the country who bought Lufford Abbey a few years ago his real name is Carswell is he a friend of yours? asked Mr. Secretary with a private wink to his wife the question let loose a torrent of declamation there was really nothing to be said for Mr. Carswell nobody knew what he did with himself his servants were a horrible set of people he had invented a new religion for himself and practised no one could tell what appalling rites he was very easily offended and never forgave anybody he had a dreadful face so the lady insisted her husband somewhat demurring he never did a kind action and whatever influence he did exert was mischievous do the poor man justice dear the husband interrupted you forget the treat he gave the school children forget it indeed but I'm glad you mentioned it because it gives an idea of the man now Florence listen to this the first winter he was at Lufford this delightful neighbour of ours wrote to the clergyman of his parish he's not ours but we know him very well and offered to show the school children some magic lantern slides he said he had some new kinds which he thought would interest them well the clergyman was rather surprised because Mr. Carswell had shown himself inclined to be unpleasant to the children complaining of their trespassing or something of the sort but of course he accepted and the evening was fixed and our friend went himself to see that everything went right he said he never had been so thankful for anything as that his own children were all prevented from being there they were at a children's party at our house as a matter of fact 
because this Mr. Carswell had evidently set out with the intention of frightening these poor village children out of their wits, and I do believe if he had been allowed to go on he would actually have done so. He began with some comparatively mild things. Red Riding Hood was one, and even then Mr. Farrer said the wolf was so dreadful that several of the smaller children had to be taken out. And he said Mr. Carswell began the story by producing a noise like a wolf howling in the distance, which was the most gruesome thing he had ever heard. All the slides he showed, Mr. Farrer said, were most clever. They were absolutely realistic, and where he had got them or how he worked them he could not imagine. Well, the show went on, and the stories kept on becoming a little more terrifying each time, and the children were mesmerized into complete silence. At last he produced a series which represented a little boy passing through his own park, Lufford, I mean, in the evening. Every child in the room could recognize the place from the pictures, and this poor boy was followed, and at last pursued and overtaken, and either torn to pieces or somehow made away with by a horrible hopping creature in white, which you saw first dodging about among the trees, and gradually it appeared more and more plainly. Mr. Farrer said it gave him one of the worst nightmares he ever remembered, and what it must have meant to the children doesn't bear thinking of. Of course, this was too much, and he spoke very sharply indeed to Mr. Carswell, and said it couldn't go on. All he said was, Oh, you think it's time to bring our little show to an end and send them home to their beds? Very well. And then, if you please, he switched on another slide which showed a great mass of snakes and centipedes and disgusting creatures with wings, and somehow or other he made it seem as if they were climbing out of the picture and getting in amongst the audience, and this was accompanied by a sort of dry rustling noise which sent the children nearly mad, and of course they stampeded. A good many of them were rather hurting getting out of the room, and I don't suppose one of them closed an eye that night. There was the most dreadful trouble in the village afterwards. Of course the mothers threw a good part of the blame on poor Mr. Farrer, and if they could have got past the gates, I believe the fathers would have broken every window in the abbey. Well now, that's Mr. Carswell, that's the Abbot of Lufford, my dear, and you can imagine how he covered his society. Yes, I think he has all the possibilities of a distinguished criminal, has Carswell, said the host. I should be sorry for anyone who got into his bad books. Is he the man, or am I mixing him up with someone else? asked the secretary, who for some minutes had been wearing the frown of the man who is trying to recollect something. Is he the man who brought out a history of witchcraft some time back, ten years or more? That's the man. Do you remember the reviews of it? Certainly I do, and what's equally to the point, I knew the author of the most incisive of the lot. So did you. You must remember John Harrington. He was at John's in our time. Oh, very well indeed, though I don't think I saw or heard anything of him between the time I went down and the day I read the account of the inquest on him. Inquest? said one of the ladies. What has happened to him? Why, what happened was that he fell out of a tree and broke his neck. But the puzzle was, what could have induced him to get up there? It was a mysterious business, I must say. He was this man, not an athletic fellow, was he? And with no eccentric twist about him that was ever noticed, walking home along a country road late in the evening, no tramps about, well known and liked in the place, 
and he suddenly begins to run like mad, loses his hat and stick, and finally shins up a tree, quite a difficult tree, growing in the hedgerow. A dead branch gives way, and he comes down with it, and breaks his neck, and there he's found next morning with the most dreadful face of fear on him that could be imagined. It was pretty evident, of course, that he had been chased by something, and people talked of savage dogs, and beasts escaped out of menageries, but there was nothing to be made of that. That was in 89, and I believe his brother Henry, whom I remember as well at Cambridge, but you probably don't, has been trying to get on the track of an explanation ever since. He, of course, insists there was malice in it, but I don't know. It's difficult to see how it could have come in. After a time, the talk reverted to the history of witchcraft. Did you ever look into it? asked the host. Yes, I did, said the secretary. I went so far as to read it. Was it as bad as it was made out to be? Oh, in point of style and form, quite hopeless. It deserved all the pulverizing it got. But besides that, it was an evil book. The man believed every word of what he was saying and I'm very much mistaken if he hadn't tried the greater part of his recipes. Well, I only remember Harrington's review of it, and I must say, if I'd been the author, it would have quenched my literary ambition for good. I should never have held up my head again. It hasn't had that effect in the present case. But come, it's half past three. I must be off. On the way home, the secretary's wife said, I do hope that horrible man won't find out that Mr. Dunning had anything to do with the rejection of his paper. I don't think there's much chance of that, said the secretary. Dunning won't mention it himself, for these matters are confidential, and none of us will for the same reason. Carswell won't know his name, for Dunning hasn't published anything on the same subject yet. The only danger is that Carswell might find out if he was to ask the British Museum people who was in the habit of consulting alchemical manuscripts. I can't very well tell them not to mention Dunning, can I? It would set them talking at once. Let's hope it won't occur to him. However, Mr. Carswell was an astute man. This much is in the way of prologue. On an evening rather later in the same week, Mr. Edward Dunning was returning from the British Museum, where he had been engaged in research, to the comfortable house in a suburb where he lived alone attended by two excellent women who had been long with him. There is nothing to be added by way of description of him to what we have heard already. Let us follow him as he takes his sober course homewards. A train took him to within a mile or two of his house, and an electric tram a stage farther. The line ended at a point some three hundred yards from his front door. He had had enough of reading when he got into the car, and indeed the light was not such as to allow him to do more than study the advertisements on the panes of glass that faced him as he sat. As was not unnatural, the advertisements in this particular line of cars were objects of his frequent contemplation, and with the possible exception of the brilliant and convincing dialogue between Mr. Lamplew and an eminent KC on the subject of pyretic saline, none of them afforded much scope to his imagination. I'm wrong. There was one at the corner of the car farthest from him, which did not seem familiar. It was in blue letters on a yellow ground, and all that he could read of it was a name, John Harrington, and something like a date, 
it could be of no interest to him to know more. But for all that, as the car emptied, he was just curious enough to move along the seat until he could read it well. He felt to a slight extent repaid for his trouble. The advertisement was not of the usual type. It ran thus, in memory of John Harrington, F.S.A., of the Laurels, Ashbrook, died September 18th, 1889. Three months were allowed. The car stopped. Mr. Dunning, still contemplating the blue letters on the yellow ground, had to be stimulated to rise by a word from the conductor. I beg your pardon, he said. I was looking at that advertisement. It's a very odd one, isn't it? The conductor read it slowly. Well, my word, he said. I've never seen that one before. Well, that is a cure, ain't it? Someone been up to their jokes here, I should think. He got out a duster and applied it, not without saliva, to the pane, and then to the outside. Now, he said, returning, that ain't no transfer. Seems to me as if it was regular in the glass. What I mean in the substance, as you might say. Don't you think so, sir? Mr. Dunning examined it and rubbed it with his glove and agreed. Who looks after these advertisements and gives leave for them to be put up? I wish you would inquire. I will just take a note of the words. At this moment there came a call from the driver. Look alive, George. Time's up. All right, all right. There's something else what's up at this end. You come and look at this here glass. What's gone with the glass? said the driver, approaching. Well, and who's Arrington? What's it all about? I was just asking who was responsible for putting the advertisements up in your cars and saying it would be as well to make some inquiry about this one. Well, sir, that's all done at the company's office, that work is. It's our Mr. Timms, I believe, looks into that. When we put up tonight, I'll leave word, and perhaps I'll be able to tell you tomorrow if you happen to be coming this way. This was all that passed that evening. Mr. Dunning did just go to the trouble of looking up Ashbrook, and found that it was in Warwickshire. Next day he went to town again. The car, it was the same car, was too full in the morning to allow of his getting a word with the conductor. He could only be sure that the curious advertisement had been made away with. The close of the day brought a further element of mystery into the transaction. He had missed the tram, or else preferred walking home, but at a rather late hour, while he was at work in his study, one of the maids came to say that two men from the tramways was very anxious to speak to him. This was a reminder of the advertisement, which he had, he says, nearly forgotten. He had the men in. They were the conductor and driver of the car, and when the matter of refreshment had been attended to, asked what Mr. Timms had had to say about the advertisement. Well, sir, that's what we took the liberty to step round about, said the conductor. Mr. Timms, he give William here the rough side of his tongue about that. According to him, there weren't no advertisement of that description sent in, nor ordered, nor paid for, nor put up, nor nothing, let alone not being there, and we was playing the fool taking up his time. Well, I says, if that's the case, all I ask of you, Mr. Timms, I says, is to take and look at it for yourself, I says. Of course, if it ain't there, I says, you may take and call me what you like. Right, he says, I will. And we went straight off. Now, I'll leave it to you, sir. If that ad, as we term them, with Arrington on it, weren't as plain as ever you see anything, blue letters on yellow glass, 
And as I says at the time, and you borne me out regular in the glass, because if you remember, you recollect of me swapping it with my duster. To be sure I do, quite clearly. Well, you may say, well, I don't think. Mr. Timms, he gets in that car with a light. No, he told William to hold the light outside. Now, he says, where's your precious ad, what we've heard so much about? Here it is, I says, Mr. Timms. And I laid my hand on it. The conductor paused. Well, said Mr. Dunning, it was gone, I suppose. Broken? Broke? Not it. There weren't, if you'll believe me, no more trace of them letters, blue letters they was, on that piece of glass than, well, it's no good me talking. I never seed such a thing. I'll leave it to William here if, uh, but there, as I says, where's the benefit in me going on about it? And what did Mr. Timms say? Why, he did right give him leave to. Called us pretty much anything he liked. And I don't know as I blame him so much neither. But what we thought William and me did was, as we seen you take down a bit of a note about that, well, that lettering, I certainly did that, and I have it now. Did you wish me to speak to Mr. Timms myself and show it to him? Was that what you came in about? There, didn't I say as much? said William. Deal with a gent if you can get on the track of one. That's my word. Now perhaps, George, you'll allow as I ain't took you very far wrong tonight. Very well, William, very well. No need for you to go on as if you'd had to frogs march me here. I come quiet, didn't I? All the same for that. We hadn't ought to take up your time this way, sir. But if it so happened, you could find time to step round to the company office in the morning and tell Mr. Timms what you've seen for yourself. We should lay out for a very high obligation to you for the trouble. You see, it ain't being called, well, one thing or another, as we mind, but if they got it into their head at the office, as we've seen things as want there, well, one thing leads to another, and where we should be a twelve months hence. Well, you can understand what I mean. Amid further elucidation of the proposition, George, conducted by William, left the room. The incredulity of Mr. Timms, who had a nodding acquaintance with Mr. Dunning, was greatly modified on the following day by what the latter could tell and show him, and any bad mark that might have been attached to the names of William and George was not suffered to remain on the company's books. But explanation there was none. Mr. Dunning's interest in the matter was kept alive by an incident of the following afternoon. He was walking from his club to the train, and he noticed some way ahead a man with a handful of leaflets, such as are distributed to passers-by by agents of enterprising firms. This agent had not chosen a very crowded street for his operations. In fact, Mr. Dunning did not see him get rid of a single leaflet before he himself reached the spot. One was thrust into his hand as he passed. The hand that gave it touched his, and he experienced a sort of little shock as it did so. It seemed unnaturally rough and hot. He looked in passing at the giver, but the impression he got was so unclear that, however much he tried to reckon it up subsequently, nothing would come. He was walking quickly and as he went on, glanced at the paper. It was a blue one. The name of Harrington, in large capitals, caught his eye. He stopped, startled, and felt for his glasses. The next instant, the leaflet was twitched out of his hand by a man who hurried past, and was irrecoverably gone. He ran back a few paces, but where was the passer-by, and where the distributor? It was in a somewhat pensive frame of mind, that Mr. Dunning passed on the following day, 
into the select manuscript room of the British Museum and filled up tickets for Harley 3586 and some other volumes. After a few minutes they were brought to him and he was settling the one he wanted first upon the desk when he thought he heard his own name whispered behind him. He turned round hastily and in doing so brushed his little portfolio of loose papers onto the floor. He saw no one he recognised except one of the staff in charge of the room who nodded to him and he proceeded to pick up his papers. He thought he had them all and was turning to begin work when a stout gentleman at the table behind him who was just rising to leave and had collected his own belongings touched him on the shoulder saying may I give you this I think it should be yours and handed him a missing choir it is mine thank you said Mr. Dunning in another moment the man had left the room upon finishing his work for the afternoon Mr. Dunning had some conversation with the assistant in charge and took occasion to ask who the stout gentleman was. Oh, he's a man named Carswell, said the assistant. He was asking me a week ago who were the great authorities on alchemy, and of course I told him you were the only one in the country. I'll see if I can catch him. He'd like to meet you, I'm sure. For heaven's sake, don't dream of it, said Mr. Dunning. I'm particularly anxious to avoid him. Oh, very well, said the assistant. He doesn't come here often. I dare say you won't meet him. More than once on the way home that day, Mr. Dunning confessed to himself that he did not look forward with his usual cheerfulness to a solitary evening. It seemed to him that something ill-defined and impalpable had stepped in between him and his fellow men, had taken him in charge, as it were. He wanted to sit close up to his neighbours in the train and in the tram, but as luck would have it, both train and car were markedly empty. The conductor, George, was thoughtful and appeared to be absorbed in calculations as to the number of passengers. On arriving at his house, he found Dr. Watson, his medical man, on his doorstep. I've had to upset your household arrangements, I'm sorry to say, Dunning. Both your servants order combat. In fact, I've had to send them to the nursing home. Good heavens, what's the matter? It's uh, something like ptomaine poisoning, I should think. You've not suffered yourself, I can see, or you wouldn't be walking about. I think they'll pull through all right. Dear, dear, have you any idea what brought it on? Well, they tell me they brought some shellfish from a hawker at their dinner time. It's odd. I've made some inquiries, but I can't find that any hawker has been to other houses in the street. I couldn't send word to you. They won't be back for a bit yet. You come and dine with me tonight, anyhow, and we can make arrangements for going on. Eight o'clock. Don't be too anxious. The solitary evening was thus obviated, at the expense of some distress and inconvenience, it is true. Mr. Dunning spent the time pleasantly enough with the doctor, a rather recent settler, and returned to his lonely home at about 11.30. The night he passed is not one on which he looks back with any satisfaction. He was in bed, and the light was out. He was wondering if the charwoman would come early enough to get him hot water next morning, when he heard the unmistakable sound of his study door opening. No step followed it on the passage floor, but the sound must mean mischief, for he knew that he had shut the door that evening after putting his papers away in his desk. 
It was rather shame than courage that induced him to slip out into the passage and lean over the banister in his nightgown, listening. No light was visible, no further sound came, only a gust of warm or even hot air played for an instant round his shins. He went back and decided to lock himself into his room. There was more unpleasantness, however. Either an economical suburban company had decided that their light would not be required in the small hours and had stopped working, or else something was wrong with the meter. The effect was in any case that the electric light was off. The obvious course was to find a match and also to consult his watch. He might as well know how many hours of discomfort awaited him. So he put his hand into the well-known nook under the pillow, only it did not get so far. What he touched was, according to his account, a mouth with teeth and with hair about it, and he declares not the mouth of a human being. I do not think it is any use to guess what he said or did, but he was in a spare room with the door locked and his ear to it before he was clearly conscious again, and there he spent the rest of a most miserable night, looking every moment for some fumbling at the door, but nothing came. The venturing back to his own room in the morning was attended with many listenings and quiverings. The door stood open, fortunately, and the blinds were up. The servants had been out of the house before the hour of drawing them down. There was, to be short, no trace of an inhabitant. The watch, too, was in its usual place. Nothing was disturbed. Only the wardrobe door had swung open, in accordance with its confirmed habit. A ring at the back door now announced the charwoman, who had been ordered the night before, and nerved Mr. Dunning, after letting her in, to continue his search in other parts of the house. It was equally fruitless. The day, thus begun, went on dismally enough. He dared not go to the museum. In spite of what the assistant had said, Carswell might turn up there, and Dunning felt that he could not cope with a probably hostile stranger. His own house was odious. He hated sponging on the doctor. He spent some little time in a call at the nursing home, where he was slightly cheered by a good report of his housekeeper and maid. Towards lunchtime, he betook himself to his club, again experiencing a gleam of satisfaction at seeing the secretary of the association. At luncheon, Dunning told his friend the more material of his woes, but could not bring himself to speak of those that weighed most heavily on his spirits. My poor dear man, said the secretary, what an upset. Look here, we're alone at home, absolutely. You must put up with us. Yes, no excuse. Send your things in this afternoon. Dunning was unable to stand out. He was, in truth, becoming acutely anxious, as the hours went on, as to what that night might have waiting for him. He was almost happy as he hurried home to pack up. His friends, when they had time to take stock of him, were rather shocked at his lawn appearance, and did their best to keep him up to the mark. Not altogether without success, but when the two men were smoking alone later, Dunning became dull again. Suddenly he said, Gayton, I believe that alchemist man knows it was I who got his paper rejected. Gayton whistled. What makes you think that? He said. 
Dunning told of his conversation with the museum assistant, and Gayton could only agree that the guess seemed likely to be correct. Not that I care much, Dunning went on, only it might be a nuisance if we were to meet. He's a bad-tempered party, I imagine. Conversation dropped again. Gayton became more and more strongly impressed with the desolateness that came over Dunning's face and bearing, and finally, though with a considerable effort, he asked him point-blank whether something serious was not bothering him. Dunning gave an exclamation of relief. I was perishing to get it off my mind, he said. Do you know anything about a man named John Harrington? Gayson was thoroughly startled, and at the moment could only ask why. Then the complete story of Dunning's experiences came out. What had happened in the tram-car, in his own house, and in the street, the troubling of spirit that had crept over him, and still held him, and he ended with the question he had begun with. Gayton was at a loss how to answer him. To tell the story of Harrington's end would perhaps be right, only Dunning was in a nervous state. The story was a grim one, and he could not help asking himself whether there were not a connecting link between these two cases in the person of Carswell. It was a difficult concession for a scientific man, but it could be eased by the phrase hypnotic suggestion. In the end, he decided that his answer tonight should be guarded. He would talk the situation over with his wife. So he said that he had known Harrington at Cambridge and believed he had died suddenly in 1889, adding a few details about the man and his published work. He did talk over the matter with Mrs. Gayton, and, as he had anticipated, she leapt at once to the conclusion which had been hovering before him. It was she who reminded him of the surviving brother, Henry Harrington, and she also who suggested that he might be got hold of by means of their hosts of the day before. He might be a hopeless crank, objected Gayton. That could be ascertained from the Bennets, who knew him, Mrs. Gayton retorted and she undertook to see the Bennets the very next day. It is not necessary to tell in further detail the steps by which Henry Harrington and Dunning were brought together. The next scene that does require to be narrated is a conversation that took place between the two. Dunning had told Harrington of the strange ways in which the dead man's name had been brought before him and had said something besides of his own subsequent experiences. Then he had asked if Harrington was disposed, in return, to recall any of the circumstances connected with his brother's death. Harrington's surprise at what he heard can be imagined, but his reply was readily given. John, he said, was in a very odd state, undeniably, from time to time, during some weeks before, though not immediately before, the catastrophe. There were several things. The principal notion he had was that he thought he was being followed. No doubt he was an impressionable man, but uh, he never had had such fancies as this before. I cannot get it out of my mind that there was ill will at work, and what you tell me about yourself reminds me very much of my brother. Can you think of any possible connecting link? There is just one that has been taking shape vaguely in my mind. I've been told that your brother reviewed a book very severely, not long before he died. 
And just lately, I have happened to cross the path of the man who wrote that book in a way he would resent. Don't tell me the man was called Carswell. Why not? That is exactly his name. Henry Harrington leant back. That is final to my mind. Now, I must explain further. From something he said, I feel sure that my brother John was beginning to believe, very much against his will, that Carswell was at the bottom of his trouble. I want to tell you what seems to me to have a bearing on the situation. My brother was a great musician, and used to run up to concerts in town. He came back, three months before he died, from one of these, and gave me his program to look at, an analytical program. He always kept them. I nearly missed this one, he said. I suppose I must have dropped it. Anyhow, I was looking for it under my seat and in my pockets and so on, and my neighbour offered me his. Said, might he give it me? He had no further use for it. And he went away just afterwards. I don't know who he was, a stout, clean-shaven man. I should have been sorry to miss it. Of course I could have brought another, but this cost me nothing. At another time, he told me that he had been very uncomfortable, both on the way to his hotel and during the night. I piece things together now in thinking it over. Then, not very long after, he was going over these programs, putting them in order to have them bound up. And in this particular one, which, by the way, I had hardly glanced at, he found quite near the beginning a strip of paper with some very odd writing on it in red and black, most carefully done. It looked to me more like runic letters than anything else. Why? he said. This must belong to my fat neighbour. It looks as if it might be worth returning to him. It may be a copy of something. Evidently someone has taken trouble over it. How can I find his address? We talked it over for a little, and agreed that it wasn't worth advertising about, and that my brother had better look out for the man at the next concert, to which he was going very soon. The paper was lying on the book, and we were both by the fire. It was a cold, windy summer evening. I suppose the door blew open, though I didn't notice it. At any rate, a gust, a warm gust it was, came quite suddenly between us, took the paper and blew it straight into the fire. It was light, thin paper and flared and went up the chimney in a single ash. Well, I said, you can't give it back now. He said nothing for a minute, then rather crossly. No, I can't. But why you should keep on saying so, I don't know. I remarked that I didn't say it more than once. Not more than four times, you mean, was all he said. I remember all that very clearly, without any good reason. And now, come to the point, I don't know if you looked at that book of Carswell's which my unfortunate brother reviewed. It's not likely that you should, but I did, both before his death and after it. The first time we made game of it together. It was written in no style at all, split infinitives and every sort of thing that makes an Oxford gorge rise. Then there was nothing that the man didn't swallow, mixing up classical myths and stories out of the golden legend with reports of savage customs of today. All very proper, no doubt, if you know how to use them, but he didn't. He seemed to put the golden legend and the golden bough exactly on a par and to believe both. A pitiable exhibition, in short. Well, after the misfortune, I looked over the book again. It was no better than before, but the impression which it left this time on my mind was different. 
I suspected, as I told you, that Carswell had borne ill will to my brother, even that he was in some way responsible for what had happened. And now his book seemed to me to be a very sinister performance indeed. One chapter in particular struck me in which he spoke of casting the runes on people, either for the purpose of gaining their affection or for getting them out of the way. Perhaps more especially the latter. He spoke of all this in a way that really seemed to me to imply actual knowledge. I've not time to go into the details, but the upshot is that I am pretty sure from information received that the civil man at the concert was Carswell. I suspect, I more than suspect, that the paper was of importance, and I do believe that if my brother had been able to give it back, he might have been alive now. Therefore, it occurs to me to ask you whether you have anything to put beside what I have told you. By way of answer, Dunning had the episode in the manuscript room at the British Museum to relate. Then he did actually hand you some papers. Have you examined them? No? Because we must, if you'll allow it, look at them at once, and very carefully. They went to the still empty house empty, for the two servants were not yet able to return to work. Dunning's portfolio of papers was gathering dust on the writing table. In it were the quires of small-sized scribbling paper, which he used for his transcripts, and from one of these, as he took it up, there slipped and fluttered out into the room with uncanny quickness a strip of thin, light paper. The window was open, but Harrington slammed it too, just in time to intercept the paper which he caught. I thought so, he said. It might be the identical thing that was given to my brother. You'll have to look out, Dunning. This may mean something quite serious for you. A long consultation took place. The paper was narrowly examined. As Harrington had said, the characters on it were more like runes than anything else, but not decipherable by either man, and both hesitated to copy them, for fear, as they confessed, of perpetuating whatever evil purpose they might conceal. So it has remained impossible, if I may anticipate a little, to ascertain what was conveyed in this curious message or commission. Both Dunning and Harrington are firmly convinced that it had the effect of bringing its possessors into very undesirable company, that it must be returned to the source whence it came, they were agreed, and further, that the only safe and certain way was that of personal service, and here contrivance would be necessary, for Dunning was known by sight to Carswell. He must, for one thing, alter his appearance by shaving his beard, but then might not the blow fall first. Harrington thought they could time it. He knew the date of the concert at which the black spot had been put on his brother. It was June the 18th. The death had followed on September the 18th. Dunning reminded him that three months had been mentioned on the inscription on the car window. Perhaps, he added with a cheerless laugh, mine may be a bill at three months too. I believe I can fix it by my diary. Yes, April the 23rd was the day at the museum. That brings us to July the 23rd. Now you know it becomes extremely important to me to know anything you will tell me about the progress of your brother's trouble if it is possible for you to speak of it. Of course. Well, the sense of being watched whenever he was alone was the most distressing thing to him. 
After a time I took to sleeping in his room, and he was the better for that. Still, he talked a great deal in his sleep. What about? Is it wise to dwell on that, at least, before things are straightened out? I think not. But I can tell you this. Two things came for him by post during those weeks, both with a London postmark, and addressed in a commercial hand. One was a woodcut of Buick's, roughly torn out of the page, one which shows a moonlit road and a man walking along it, followed by an awful demon creature. Under it were written the lines out of the ancient mariner, which I suppose the cut illustrates, about one who, having once looked round, walks on and turns no more his head, because he knows a frightful fiend doth close behind him tread. The other was a calendar, such as tradesmen often send. My brother paid no attention to this, but I looked at it after his death, and found that everything after September the 18th had been torn out. You may be surprised at his having gone out alone the evening he was killed, but the fact is that during the last ten days or so of his life he had been quite free from the sense of being followed or watched. The end of the consultation was this. Harrington, who knew a neighbour of Carswell's, thought he saw a way of keeping a watch on his movements. It would be Dunning's part to be in readiness to try to cross Carswell's path at any moment to keep the paper safe and in a place of ready access. They parted. The next weeks were no doubt a severe strain upon Dunning's nerves. The intangible barrier which had seemed to rise about him on the day when he received the paper gradually developed into a brooding blackness that cut him off from the means of escape to which one might have thought he might resort. No one was at hand who was likely to suggest them to him, and he seemed robbed of all initiative. He waited with inexpressible anxiety as May, June and early July passed on for a mandate from Harrington. But all this time Carswell remained immovable at Lufford. At last, in less than a week before the date he had come to look upon as the end of his earthly activities, came a telegram. Leave Victoria by boat train Thursday night. Do not miss. I come to you tonight. Harrington. He arrived accordingly, and they concocted plans. The train left Victoria at nine, and its last stop before Dover was Croydon West. Harrington would mark down Carswell at Victoria and look out for Dunning at Croydon, calling to him if need were by a name agreed upon. Dunning, disguised as far as might be, was to have no label or initials on any hand luggage and must at all costs have the paper with him. Dunning's suspense as he waited on the Croydon platform I need not attempt to describe. His sense of danger during the last days had only been sharpened by the fact that the cloud about him had perceptibly been lighter. But relief was an ominous symptom, and if Carswell eluded him now, hope was gone, and there were so many chances of that. The rumour of the journey might be itself a device. The twenty minutes in which he paced the platform and persecuted every porter with inquiries as to the boat train were as bitter as any he had spent. Still, the train came, and Harrington was at the window. It was important, of course, that there should be no recognition, so Dunning got in at the farther end of the corridor carriage, 
and only gradually made his way to the compartment where Harrington and Carswell were. He was pleased on the whole to see that the train was far from full. Carswell was on the alert, but gave no sign of recognition. Dunning took the seat not immediately facing him, and attempted vainly at first, then with increasing command of his faculties, to reckon the possibilities of making the desired transfer. Opposite to Carswell, and next to Dunning, was a heap of Carswell's coats on the seat. It would be of no use to slip the paper into these. He would not be safe, or would not feel so, unless in some way it could be proffered by him and accepted by the other. There was a handbag open, and with papers in it. Could he manage to conceal this, so that perhaps Carswell might leave the carriage without it, and then find and give it to him? This was the plan that suggested itself. If he could only have counselled with Harrington, but that could not be. The minutes went on. More than once Carswell rose and went out into the corridor. The second time Dunning was on the point of attempting to make the bag fall off the seat, but he caught Harrington's eye and read in it a warning. Carswell, from the corridor, was watching, probably to see if the two men recognised each other. He returned, but was evidently restless, and when he rose the third time, hope dawned, for something did slip off his seat and fall, with hardly a sound, to the floor. Carswell went out once more, and passed out of range of the corridor window. Dunning picked up what had fallen, and saw that the key was in his hands, in the form of one of Cook's ticket cases, with tickets in it. These cases have a pocket in the cover, and within very few seconds the paper of which we have heard was in the pocket of this one. To make the operation more secure, Harrington stood in the doorway of the compartment and fiddled with the blind. It was done, and done at the right time, for the train was now slowing down towards Dover. In a moment more, Carswell re-entered the compartment. As he did so, Dunning, managing, he knew not how, to suppress the tremble in his voice, handed him the ticket case, saying, May I give you this, sir? I believe it is yours. After a brief glance at the ticket inside, Carswell uttered the hoped-for response. Yes, it is. Much obliged to you, sir. And he placed it in his breast pocket. Even in the few moments that remained, moments of tense anxiety, for they knew not to what a premature finding of the paper might lead. Both men noticed that the carriage seemed to darken about them, and to grow warmer, that Carswell was fidgety and oppressed, that he drew the heap of loose coats near to him, and cast it back as if it repelled him, and that he then sat upright and glanced anxiously at both. They, with sickening anxiety, busied themselves in collecting their belongings, but they both thought that Carswell was on the point of speaking when the train stopped at Dover Town. It was natural that in the short space between town and pier they should both go into the corridor. At the pier they got out, but so empty was the train that they were forced to linger on the platform until Carswell should have passed ahead of them with his porter on the way to the boat, and only then was it safe for them to exchange a pressure of the hand and a word of concentrated congratulation. The effect upon Dunning was to make him almost faint. Harrington made him lean up against the wall, while he himself went forward a few yards within sight of the gangway to the boat, at which Carswell had now arrived. 
The man at the head of it examined his ticket, and laden with coats he passed down into the boat. Suddenly the official called after him, You, sir, beg pardon, did the other gentleman show his ticket? What the devil do you mean by the other gentleman? Carswell's snarling voice called back from the deck. The man bent over and looked at him. The devil? Well, I don't know, I'm sure. Harrington heard him say to himself, and then aloud, My mistake, sir. Must have been your rugs. Ask your pardon. And then to a subordinate near him, Had he got a dog with him, or what? Funny thing, I could have swore he wasn't alone. Well, whatever it was, they'll have to see to it aboard. She's off now. Another week, we shall be getting the holiday customers. In five minutes more, there was nothing but the lessening lights of the boat, the long line of the Dover lamps, the night breeze, and the moon. Long and long the two sat in their room at the Lord Warden. In spite of the removal of their greatest anxiety, they were oppressed with a doubt, not of the lightest. Had they been justified in sending a man to his death as they believed they had? Ought they not to warn him at least? No, said Harrington. If he is the murderer, I think him, we have done no more than is just. Still, if you think it better, but how and where can you warn him? He was booked to Abbeville only, said Dunning. I saw that. If I wired to the hotels there in Joanne's guide, examine your ticket case, Dunning, I should feel happier. This is the 21st. He will have a day, but I am afraid that he has gone into the dark. So telegrams were left at the hotel office. It is not clear whether these reached their destination or whether, if they did, they were understood. All that is known is that on the afternoon of the 23rd, an English traveller examining the front of St. Wolfram's Church at Abbeville, then under extensive repair, was struck on the head and instantly killed by a stone falling from the scaffold erected round the northwestern tower, there being, as was clearly proved, no workman on the scaffold at that moment, and the traveller's papers identified him as Mr. Carswell. Only one detail shall be added. At Carswell's sale, a set of Buick, sold with all faults, was acquired by Harrington. The page with the woodcut of the Traveller and the Demon was, as he had expected, mutilated. Also, after a judicious interval, Harrington repeated to Dunning something of what he had heard his brother say in his sleep. But it was not long before Dunning stopped him. End of Casting the Runes From Ghost Stories of an Antiquary by M. R. James